Captain Alan Gardner, a British naval officer, was born in 1794, which is the French Revolution. By 1810, he was 16 years old, and he was a sailor engaged in fighting in the Pacific against the Americans. And he was now drifting into a godless naval life, mocking the Bible and the truths that his parents had taught him as a young boy. But his mother's prayers followed him. Let that be an encouragement to you, especially mothers. His mother's prayers followed him, and as you look ahead, he became a man of prayer, a man of conviction, a missionary, but his life was a growing list of disappointments and discouragements and difficulties. For instance, in 1851, he and a group of fellow missionaries were in Tierra del Fuego, which is the southern tip of Argentina in South America. The indigenous population was hostile. They were running low on supplies. There were storms battering the ship. And one by one, his companions began to die of starvation and illness. And as they lay dying around him, this is what Gardner wrote in a journal that was later found. He said, in noting down our wants and difficulties, I would not conclude without expressing my thanks to the God of all mercies for the grace he has bestowed on each of my suffering companions, who with the utmost cheerfulness endure all without a murmur, patiently awaiting the Lord's time to deliver them and ready should it be his will to languish and die here, knowing that whatever he shall appoint shall be well. Gardner was the last one to die. He himself succumbed, and he says about himself in this way, I pray that in whatever state, by his wise and gracious providence, I may be placed. I may therewith be content and patiently await the development of his righteous will concerning me, knowing that he doeth all things well. Here are people dying around him, he himself dying, and he says, you know what? God is good. Now, you have to be crazy to say that, or you have to be filled with the Spirit. There's no middle ground. There's no human way that you could ever say things like that in the midst of such catastrophe. I mean, when I read accounts like this, I realize I know very little about ultimate commitment, okay? Been ministry 50 years, but I know very little about this type of commitment. I mean, I want a good life. I want my best life now. Have you read that book? Uh, don't read it. Uh, I want to be healthy. I want enough food. I want creature comforts. I want amenities. And I want you to have them too. We all want the good life on our terms. And then people like Alan Gardner come into my experience and burst my bubble. Okay, this actually came out of the Banner of Truth website, this story of Ellen Gardner. It's very, very interesting. Uh, Gardner burst my bubble because I, then I get apprehensive and say, you know what? Suppose the Lord asked me to go through my Tierra del Fugo. Well, there's another person in history that went through it, and that's Habakkuk. Okay, as so we've been studying the book of Habakkuk, we're in the last one now of the series. I want you to turn to Habakkuk chapter three, we're gonna start in verse 17. We're gonna look at this and we're gonna work backwards to find out how he got here. Okay, stand with me if you will. Habakkuk chapter three, verse 17, the reading of God's word. 
Habakkuk says this, the very end of his book, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet, I will rejoice in the Lord, I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's, he makes me tread on my high places. Father, open our ears, our eyes, and our hearts to the power of this passage and of this whole chapter. May you be glorified in this brief study today. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Now, how did Habakkuk arrive at this, this kind of surrender, okay? Because in the first chapter, he's asking difficult questions. The whole series is asking God tough questions. Why God, how long God, and then when the Lord showed him, well, I'll tell you what I'm gonna do about your problems in the country. I'm gonna bring the Babylonians against you. They're gonna basically destroy you. Uh, then he has the problem of evil he has to wrestle with. How can these evil people actually be used uh, to uh, discipline us? He was full of questions and consternation. In chapter two, the Lord begins to answer his questions. He shows him, yes, Israel is going to be demolished. Jerusalem will be conquered. The temple will be smashed. Uh, this is all true, but the Babylonians themselves will not escape justice. That's the second chapter. Now we come to the third chapter, this final and concluding chapter. Now this is in the form of a prayer or a song or a poem. Okay, we know that from several words in here, the first verse. Shigianoth, that's what Jack Morris couldn't get in our little video, you know. Uh, Shigianoth is sort of the style of the, of the composition, kind of the rhythm of it. Uh, you see the word selah in here, you see that in the Psalms, that's sort of a musical pause or an interlude, right? And then the very end of the book, it says to the choir master, with stringed instruments. Now, why do I bring this up? Because certain ones of us here uh, do not do very well with poetry. Okay, uh, some, uh, this is like a psalm, uh, chapter three is, is, a, is a poetic chapter, all right? And uh, has creative use of language. I mean, 90% of Shakespeare is over my head. I have no idea what's being said in that kind of writing. My brain works Linear, logical, concrete, I want rational word order, okay? I love uh, verses like Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, right? For by grace are you saved through faith, the ground of salvation, the instrument of salvation. You know, it's, it's a gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. The results of salvation is humility, and I can get that. In fact, I'm gonna start preaching on that right now and forget Habakkuk, because it's too hard. Uh, I get that. What I don't get is poetic language. Okay, the use of language. Now, some of you are married to people that are like that. They're just kind of like, they just talk, and you know, it's gonna talk about different things, and you don't know what the sequence is, and I'm, I'm, I'm saying when I talk to people like that, what's the bottom line here? Can we get to the bottom line, please? You know? one, uh, one of these commentators pointed out all the different grammatical and literary devices used in this chapter, chapter three, and I'm saying this for a point, you'll, you'll get it in a minute. Let me just mention some of these. Uh, simile and metaphor, I kind of remember that from school. Uh, metonymy, 
Is that how you say it? Only English geeky guys get all these words, like English professor Michael Neal over there. Uh, Marismus, hyperbole, uh, peronomasia. I, I told uh, somebody in the first service, it sounded like, these sound like skin diseases, people. These are literary devices in chapter three, okay? Personification, rhetorical questions, enjambment. You never heard of that one, have you? You have heard of that, okay. Climatic parallelism, gender match parallelism, staircase parallelism, chiasmus, alliteration and assonance. You get all those? Makes you wanna go read it right now, doesn't it? Why do I bring this up? Because we sort of avoid things that we don't understand, okay? If we did that in Habakkuk, in chapter three, however, we're making a big mistake. Remember, the point is asking, how did Habakkuk get to the place where he surrendered himself to the Lord in the midst of significant catastrophes? How did he do that? Well, here's the first point in this message. Chapter three describes the greatness of God in this poetic language, okay? Most everyone who studies this, and I read, I've read 15, 18 commentaries on, on this book, point to the idea that Habakkuk is talking about, maybe among other things, two major events in Israel's history, the Exodus and the conquest of Canaan, right? One writer pointed out that the Exodus in the Old Testament has the moral impact and equivalency to the cross for a Christian. Okay, in other words, you see it and you go, oh, that's the whole point. Well, the Exodus was the salvation of the people in the Old Testament. There's, uh, if I had, we had more time, I would go into these various verses, but what uh, Habakkuk is saying in the first chapter, or first verse, O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. In the midst of the years, revive it. What he's saying is when you hear a report, that's secondhand information, you're getting it from someone else, like uh, things passed down through history, you know, here. And he's saying, I, I've heard about what you did uh, in the Exodus, and I want, you to, I want you to do it again. I want you to show your mighty hand again, okay, to us. In other words, be powerfully present in our midst. There's all this apocalyptic language about God's judgment of the nations, and he says, I, I see you, and this is what I want you to do again in our midst. Be powerful, God, you know, here. Uh, there's all kinds of references to God's glory and his sovereignty and his power and his holiness, his love for his people. That's what chapter uh, three, verses three through 15 are all about. But if you just get caught up in the poetry, you go, ah, I kind of get this. Uh, but he's saying, God, this is, this is who you are and this is what you do. You are the great God of the universe. So his recall of God's faithfulness in the past gives him courage about God's deliverance in the future. Okay, this is, this is the point. Now, where does this get practical for us? Well, historical faithfulness is a down payment on future faithfulness. You did it, you can do it again. So let me ask you a question. Do you have any sense that you have a history with God? You can look through the, the course of your life, I don't care whether you're a young college student or whether you're you know, 95 years old, like some of us around here, uh, and do, can you say God's doing things? God, God invaded this space in my life. This is a divine intrusion. This is a God sighting. You know, I told you about a couple of these in our early Christian life that were very helpful to us, and there have been more recently with our kids and so forth, but 
And I love talking about Debbie's uh, sins. You know, her, my wife, she's not here, so I can talk about them. And, you know, I, I told you last week she threw a shoe at me, you know, in our first year of marriage. Uh, this, I mean, she got it out of her system. It's the only time she's ever thrown anything at me. And um, why did I, why'd she do that? We had $5 on our checking account. We weren't getting paid for a week. And I'm a poor crew staff member, you know, I had no money. And I bought donuts for the guys uh, in my Bible study, you know. So she, was, she said, I gotta buy bread and peanut butter and you're buying donuts. And so she threw something at me. So later that day, I'm licking my uh, wounds and I'm also licking the donut sugar off my fingers. And, and we opened our front door and what did we see? There was two bags of groceries sitting out. We didn't tell anybody. There were two bags of groceries sitting out there. You say, oh, that's a coincidence. I wanna tell you, when you're young, and you're struggling, and you don't know where your next meal might be coming from. You ever, anybody ever, ever have that here? When God showed up like that, I said, you know what? We can trust him. We can trust him, because he's good. And then later, I'm praying very diligently for my future. After four years in a very tough ministry situation in Illinois, uh, on my knees, and I literally get off my knees into the cafe there at the seminary where I was studying at the time. As a, I was a pastor, but I went back to the seminary to study. And this uh, student named Jose just happened, he just happened to walk by me and said, hey, you know what, there's a church in Tallahassee that might be interested in you. That happened five minutes after my prayers. Why did he walk by then? Well, it's just a coincidence. You can say that, but you know, if, if, you, if you're desperate for God to show up because you don't have any food or, or you're asking for his direction and you're sort of up against it and all of a sudden uh, there's a movement of God in your life, am I gonna say that was coincidence? I would never say that. That he moved his mighty hand. These are God's sightings and there have been many others throughout. And you have those too in your life. You need to have a history with God if you're going to believe he can do things in your future, as he has done in your past, right? That's the whole genius of chapter three, the greatness of God, the power of God, the glory of God, the sovereignty of God, Lord, revive, do this work again in our midst. This is part of what gives him courage to talk about what he did in verse 17. Because he said, I can trust, he's, he's there, he's real. Now the next phase of this is the second point, which is Habakkuk's weakness. Uh, this is in verse 16, he said, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound, rottenness enters into my bones and my legs tremble beneath me. This uh, vision of God, his greatness, his power, his work, and his ultimate judgment uh, brought him to a place of being physically ill. In other words, he said, I'm pretty small in this process. I, I'm weak. And God is showing his power and I'm overwhelmed by this. This happened to Isaiah in Isaiah chapter six. He sees the holiness of God, you know, holy, holy, holy. And he falls on his face and he says, woe is me, I'm ruined. In other words, I've seen who he is. And now I see more clearly who I am. All right, in fact, uh, John Kelvin uh, points this out in the very early chapters of his uh, uh, institutes. He says this, 
Without knowledge of God, there is no knowledge of self. See, people think they know who they are. Oh, I'm this and I'm that, and this is my identity, and this is what I do, and this is who I am. Kelvin says, you know, you, you can't even know yourself unless you know God first. Now, people in the secular world laugh at that. They think that's ridiculous. They think this, that's stupid. Okay, I don't, I don't even believe in God. But he says that it is certain that man never achieves a current knowledge of himself unless he first looks upon God's face. But unless you know who he is, you never understand who you are or why you were made or why you're here or why you were given the life you were given. And it makes perfect sense to me now that people, uh, because we've rejected uh, this sort of objective truth or the Judeo-Christian version of reality, that people are free to make up their own rules about who they are, whether it's personhood or gender, whatever it is, it's making up their own rules. We're seeing a culture where people are doing whatever they want. They feel like it's liberating. We look at it and say, we think that's ominous and that's culture destroying, Uh, but that's where people are today, isn't it? Uh, And the point is, uh, we're not in Kansas anymore, right? Toto, we're not in Kansas anymore. We haven't been for a really long time. Our greatest battle as Christians is accepting our utter and absolute dependence on the grace and power of God. You know why? Because you're small and you're weak. I said this in the first service, I'll just say it to you. Everybody in this room is screwed up at some level, physically, emotionally, relationally, okay? None of us have our act together. We are wounded and fragmented people at different levels, right? We come across well, we can function in the world, we can have jobs, but there's nobody here that has their act together in all these areas, emotionally, spiritually, uh, physically. Something is wrong with everybody in this room. And that's why it's an amazing thing that we're all here. And we can say, you know, God, you, you're, you're awesome. You know, you're awesome. If you're trying to find the perfect mate, you'll never find her or him. You'll never find that person who's just perfect for you and never challenges you, never you know, troubles you, never questions you. Uh, if you're looking for that person, you're gonna be single the rest of your life. Everybody here is broken. And we have to come to grips with that and appreciate that. And Habakkuk knew that he was a broken, weak, small man, trembling at the very presence of God. Now, Paul Tripp has many things to say about this. I've read some of this to you before. He says this, the weaknesses he sends your way, I'm talking about emotional, physical, spiritual, are not impediments to your good life. These weaknesses are tools of a zealous and amazing grace. They protect you from the arrogance and self-reliance that tempts every one of us. They keep you from thinking that you are capable of what you're not. They remind you that you're needy and were created to be dependent on one greater than you. They cause you to do what all of us in some ways resist, humbly running to God for the help that only he can give. Okay, it's in his uh, New Morning Mercies. So then I said, he says this, and I've read this to you before. So your weaknesses are not the biggest danger in your life. What you should fear are your what? Delusions of strength. Those are your greatest enemies. I'm capable, I'm strong, I'm able. Watch me, world, here I come. It's good to be, it's good to be positive. It's, it's good to be idealistic in some ways. It's good to have a forward-looking view. 
but you're not God's gift to the world. You're just a person in need and the grace of God is the only thing that can make a difference for you. So this is how we get to verse 17. Two things. I see the greatness of God and I see my own smallness. Now, verse 17, look at it again with me. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Uh, now, city dwellers don't get this. This just isn't a bad crop year. Like, well, you know, the cotton crop was down, or, ah, yeah, we, we kind of lost our oranges because of a freeze. This isn't just a bad year on the farm. The description here is of total economic collapse. Everything that defined their economic system is gone. See, well, how did that happen? Well, it would have happened in the Babylonian invasion, wouldn't it? They had nothing left because wealth at this time was measured by you know, the fields and the produce and the crops and the herds, right? That's how you measured wealth, right? Gone, finished. This was not just economic collapse, it was societal upheaval and death, okay? This is, this is what Habakkuk is saying. Though these things were to happen, in other words, everything in the world that it's familiar to me is predictable, is destroyed. And this is where we come up with a sermon title Though, 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 that's the NASB version. There's little uh, you know, Hebrew words, they mean different things, nor or whatever, but though, 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 in the NASB, yet, he says, yet what? I'll rejoice in the Lord and take joy in the God of my salvation. Uh, th this is so counterculture and so profound. What he's saying, of course, is joy is not contingent upon circumstances. We, we should know that, right? Joy is not about uh, pleasurable outcomes. It's something deeper that can't be taken away from you in your life. Now, let's face it, most of us are not though, though, though people. Though, though, though yet people. We're, we're just not there. Uh, I get a flat tire and I feel like my, you know, my day's kind of unglued, right? You know? Or the air conditioner breaks, or you know, it doesn't take much for me to go. <laughs> what about you? Right? We've not experienced the total collapse of everything, but many of us have tasted some partial collapse in life. Right? I remember, relative to one of my kids, uh, my older son was about 13. He he was really struggling with his health, and so this doctor uh, says, "Well, you know, your son has a wasting neurological disease, and call us when you need a wheelchair." Right? So we're walking out of the doctor's office saying, "Well, <laughs> now that didn't happen the way that he said. That's why they call it practicing medicine." <laughs> but you know, you talk about being heart sick. You don't have kids to see them suffer, do you? Some of you have this. From the very beginning, you faced the heartache of a handicapped child. Others of us have uh, gotten the calls in the middle of the night. The sheriff is showing up at your door, right? You got handed divorce papers. You heard the doctor say, I'm sorry, there's nothing more we can do. 
That's a jolt, isn't it, to hear that, either for you or for your parents or your siblings, right? Your position has been terminated. All of these things feel like collapse of expectations, of health, of employment, of security, of life. It, it rocks our worlds. Things aren't stable. Psalm 46 speaks of this. When the psalmist says, though the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, nothing is more stable in the uh, world than, than mountains. I mean, expect them to always be there, right? You look out the window and, oh, there's Pike's Peak, and it's still there. Isn't that cool? Yeah, it's, it's there and it'll be there tomorrow, you know? Pike's Peak. Rock, the mountains are stable. He says, if the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, yet we will not fear. You see, you see, you see the radical nature of that? I mean, who, who does that, right? Who lives like that? But there's a, a key in verse 10 in that Psalm 46 where, where the Lord says, uh, be still and know that I am God. Part of the key is being still. Focus. Concentrate. Think. Create space, margins, an environment to be still. That's the source of strength. Unless you know who he is. Unless you know who you are. You can't endure anything. You can't bear collapse of some hope or dream or expectation or relationship unless you're confident that God is in total control and that he loves you. If you don't believe those two things, you're done. You're done. So what do you do to nurture that? That belief and expectation and that trust and that confidence. I mean, how much... Time are we spending in his presence? You, you, can't, you can't be consumed uh, by casual religion. You know, you just pick up a devotional scrap here and a Bible tidbit there and a one-minute devotional here and a three-minute podcast there. You can't be that skimpy. You can't eat those little morsels and expect to be spiritually strong. You, you just can't do it. And we live this way. Satisfied with morsels and little pep talks and religious scraps. And because we, we don't really understand how desperately needy we are for God to be in the center of our lives. And this is what Habakkuk began to see. You, God, are great. And I can trust you no matter what happens to me. This is, this is it's profound stuff. So I ask you the question, do you have any margins in your life to be still and spend time with the king of the universe? Does anybody do that here? Does anybody want to dig in to see what God says about himself and about you? Or will we be like what Charles Spurgeon says, we'll stand before the Lord defiled with Bible dust on our hands. <laughs> Bible dust. We have to help each other understand that he's all we have. And we pursue him not because something bad might happen. We pursue him because he's worthy of being loved and praised. He's worthy of our trust. His word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Right? 
little meme that we put up here. It was about if you treated your Bible like your cell phone, what happens if you carried it everywhere? And the, one of the wise guys back there said, oh, but we do, have, we do because we have a Bible app on our phone. Well, I mean, uh, you know, if we turn back to go get it, if we forgot it, would we do that? No. Check it for messages throughout the day, use it in case of emergency, spend an hour or more using it each day, you know? You, you, I bet some of you look at your phone before you do anything else in the morning, and I'm as guilty as anybody. because so I gotta check the scores. I mean, I gotta check the scores. He says in verse 19, God the Lord is my strength. There's a sequence there. The word God in this case is Yahweh. The word Lord is Adonai. It's like God my Lord. And that's important because you, you can't get any strength unless you're in surrender to him. You know, submission, surrender, sub subjection. You can't be large and in charge and expect to have any power from God. Okay, if you're large and in charge, if you're running your life, you're not gonna, you're not gonna have any power. The strength comes in surrender. It comes from the brokenness of saying, I have nowhere to go but to you, God. And then he says, you, you, you fill me with your strength, this power that you don't have, it's supernatural power to endure things that otherwise you can't endure. And you, you can only get this when you need it. You can't project into the future and say, well, I'll have this power that, because I look at things that could happen and I just get, I get weak. But I'm not there yet to need it. It's when you need it is when God gives it to you. Now, he finally says, he makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread in my high places. This always reminds me of En Gedi, and we have some pictures of En Gedi. This is in Israel from one of our latest trips. That's uh, what En Gedi looks like. Those are the rock outcroppings. And if you look carefully at one of these pictures, you can see if you have any good, if you're a hunter, you might see in the middle. What do you see in the middle of that picture? You look really carefully. Now we'll, we'll, we'll do a zoom into there. This is the ibex, the mountain goats. This is, this is what Habakkuk and David meant when they say, uh, he makes my feet you know, uh, stable in high places. This, this, is, this is what they meant right here. And then there's a the last picture of the, of the, uh, of the, the surroundings of En Gedi. This is, this is where uh, David hid from Saul. In the, in the caves. And you say, well, boy, look at there's some greenery. You know why there's greenery? Because out of those rocks, underneath those rocks, is an oasis spring just coming out there. That's why there's greenery in the midst of the desert. That's what it means to walk in treacherous territory and say, you know what? I, I don't have to fall because I'm, I'm safe with Jesus. Now, when I think of people willing to... Uh, Trust God in, in the midst of troubles on treacherous ground. I, I know she wouldn't like me to, to bring her out, and I don't, she's not here. She's probably watching at home, and she can shoot me later. Uh, Vicki Hayes. Some of you don't know Vicki Hayes. Uh, Vicki Hayes is a person in our church, and when, when she goes to heaven, I want to tell you, I'm not going to see her in heaven. You know why? Because she's going to be so much closer to the throne of God than me. She'll be right up at the feet of Jesus. Because Vicki Hayes... You never want to trade places with her in her life. She's had a hard life. And right now her health is terrible. I mean, it's better than it was, but it's always kind of iffy, right? And she's a woman for many, many years around here that has led another group of women 
called the Wellness Group. She has 30, 40 people on her mailing list, and she just teaches them the Word of God in the midst of her own, um, her own brokenness and her own weaknesses. And every time I'm around her, there's one impression that I leave with. You know what that is? God is real. When I see Vicki Hayes, I say, God is real. You say, why? Well, because of her countenance, her joy, her humility, her surrender, her love for others, in need, her gratitude. Most of you would never want to trade places uh, with, uh, with Vicki uh, circumstantially, but I would guarantee you, you'd want to trade places with her spiritually. But the only reason she is like she is is because her life has not been easy. These are the saints that we have around this place. Hidden, not drawing attention to themselves, but doing powerful work for God because of who they are. And this is the Habakkuk story. This is four weeks. Habakkuk finally lived out in this last few verses what the Lord told him in the second chapter, verse 4, that the righteous will live by faith. Habakkuk says, that is what I want to do. And he demonstrated it by saying, God, I'm all yours, no matter what you bring in my life. I don't know if any of us are there yet, but these are the things that we can aspire to by the grace of God. And that's the story of Habakkuk.